Good morning in Freilichen Hanukkah to all. I want to thank our sponsors this morning, Dvorah Navi Orlan, in memory of their beloved daughter, Miriam Esther Bas Avram Yitzchak, and Rhonda Shuval, in memory of her beloved parents, Sigmund and Irene Schaefer, in commemoration of their Yuritzites. All their neshamas should have an aliyah. <clears throat> okay, we're continuing in a piece we began in Revolbi, in the second chilek, the second volume of Ali Shore, the sixth chapter we started last week, talking about the balance <clears throat> or the interrelationship between Hishtadlis and Bitachon. On the one hand, the uh, notion of human initiative and effort, the effort that we take, and on the other hand, Bitachon, the fact that we put our faith and trust in Hashem, that everything is indeed from Him. The Dafyomi just yesterday, Chulin, talked about if you stub your toe down here, it's because it was ordained from above. That nothing is by coincidence, nothing is by chance, that everything is a result of our relationship with Hashem. You reach into your pocket for a nickel and you pulled out a quarter. If uh, everything, everything that happens is by design, there's no coincidence, there is no chance. So on the one hand, we are to live with that intense and extreme mindfulness, that sense of faith that nothing is random or chance. It's all ordained from above. If it's all ordained from above, why try? Why bother? Why do? Why take initiative? How do we, how do we uh, relate? What is the balance between the two? Last week we spoke about Yosef who twice asked the Saramashkim, Please remember me when you meet Paro. And because he asked twice, was punished to sit two extra years in prison. And the inside of Reb Chaim, that had he asked once, he wouldn't have sat one extra year, he would have sat no extra years. Once he had to ask. You have to take initiative. We have to do our part. On the other hand, you can't take too much initiative. You've got to take just the right amount. So that's what we're up to, the second paragraph here in Revolbi and Ali Shor, Chelik Beis, Perak Shishi, Marach Shlishis, Perak Shishi. The Jewish people, we are rooted in godliness. We live with that sense of divine providence. We live with the sense that Hashem is with us every step of the way. Every red light we hit, every delay, every interaction, every moment, every cold, every cough, every sniffle, every everything. That whatever happens, every step we take in our lives is a communication with Hashem. He's communicating with us. If that's the case, says Ravolba, that inspires an incredibly overwhelming question. Everything is from Hashem. So why bother? If Hashem is determined on Rosh Hashanah, how much money I'm going to make this year, so why am I staying extra at work? Why am I trying harder at work? Why am I striving at work? Why am I going to work? On Rosh Hashanah, on Rosh Hashanah, Mizonosho Shaladam Ketsuva, because Baruch was determined how much I'm going to make. So why am I reading up about the stock market, mutual funds, and, and uh, you know, is it about to be a depression? Are we about to have a downturn? Is it just a correction? Should I liquidate all my, all my holdings? Should I invest more? What am I reading all this stuff for? Just, you know, Put a newspaper on the wall, throw a bunch of darts, and a Kurdish Baruch who's the one to determine whether I'm going to make money or not. So why am I trying? Why am I exercising and eating right? There are obese people who live to 105, and there are marathon runners who drop dead at 40. So what am I doing it for? If we believe that it's all Ashkocha Pratis, if we live with life with the sense that every step I take, Hashem is guiding me, He's holding me, He's there, He is the one who's the, the puppeteer pulling the strings. So what am I trying for? Why try? Why try hard? We want to find a path. We want to find an opening to this question. So if we want to understand this issue, 
then we've got to go back to the root. And the root is a Gemara in Kedushin. The Gemara in Kedushin says the following, Tanya Rav Shimon ben Elazar Omer, Miyamay lo ra'isi tzvi kayet v'ari sava v'shua chenvani. V'heim esparnasim shalom b'tzar. So he has this incredible insight. I never saw an animal who had to work for a living. I never saw a fox who was a storekeeper who owned a store. I never saw an Ari. I never saw them hunting or trapping, a tailor, a blacksmith. I never saw a cat or a dog who, who hung a shingle to say, this is what I do for a living. I'm a psychologist, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer. And nevertheless, hey, Ms. Parnas and Shalom And they're not working for a living and they're able to access livelihood, nourishment, sustenance without any effort. They rummage through the garbage, or they eat the grass in the backyard, or they nibble on the vegetation, and they've got everything. And their whole existence is only to serve me. I'm here to serve you, God. They're all here to serve me. That is the Jewish view, by the way. I apologize to the pet owners. We're not here to serve the pets. The pets are here to serve us. I won't give my editorial comment right now. But... That is, um, the animals are here to serve us. The dinner, they're the material of the couch we sit on. They're the, no, I'm just joking, Penny. Dogs are wonderful. They serve us, they cuddle, they snuggle, they give companionship and love. I, I hear all that stuff. Okay, fine. So they're here to serve us. So the animal's here to serve me. I'm here to serve you. Why does the animal get the free ride? The animal's got the ATM, unlimited ATM debit card. I don't understand I have to work my tail off to earn a living. If I want to pay tuition and I want to afford kosher food and I want to be able to make yuntif and I want to be able to make the pre-made candles for the, you know, uh, menorah. <laughs> I was in Israel over Shabbos. A Friday I took my daughter. I was in Israel for the year shopping. A Thursday to get her set there. They have, you know, 400 options of sets there and every store sells and it's all a fraction of the cost of what we pay. It's another motivation why we should all move to Israel. Make Aliyah. Yeah. It's a fraction of the markup of what, of what we pay here. So I, to, to be able to buy the... Uh, a lot of things are, including, yeah. including Savganiyah. So if I want to be able to light those pre-made candles, I've got to work my tail off to earn a living, to earn an income. And the, and the animal, whose whole job it is, is to serve me. The animal gets the free ride. I don't get it. Those who are here to serve me are able to sustain themselves with no effort, with no initiative, with no suffering. But I who here to serve you... This is what's called a kalvachomer, a fortiori in Latin, which we all know Ooh. thanks to the Sansino Gemaras back before art school. So what is a kalvachomer? If this, then certainly that. If the lowly animal who has no intrinsic value or purpose but who's only there to serve me nevertheless has to make no effort, so I, who am here to serve you, it's there to serve me, it makes no effort. So me, I, shouldn't have to work hard. The answer is, we have to. I, I trampled, I, I lost, I forfeited. I have to work hard because I lost the chance to not have to work hard. I, like the animal, was designed and designated and the world was created that I wouldn't have to work hard. But I messed it up. <laughs> Where did we mess it up? Because when Adam Arishon was living in Gan Eden, 
the way Hashem set up the world to begin with, in the Garden of Eden, everything grew in the trees, everything was set. Adam did not have to. He had to daven for it. That was his avoda. Ezi avoda should believe. He had to work harder than anyone. What's the hardest work? It's davening. It's the avoda should believe. It's called work for a reason. It takes avoda to really get meaning out of davening, to not just fly through the words or check off that we made it through the sitter, but to be transformed, to be connected, to have a rendezvous with Hashem, for davening to really be what it's meant to be. It's an avoda believe. It's an avoda. It takes work. It's work. So Adam Arishon's only job, his only work he had to exert was daven to Hashem. Everything else happened automatically. The cash just came out of the ATM. The shmorg, unlimited all-you-can-eat shmorg, was always, always on display. Adam, this is a very kind crowd. Adam Arishon had, had everything prepared for him. So what happened? What went wrong? Adam messed it all up. A parent sets up the kid and says, you have a trust fund, you're set for life. I just want you to be able to sit and learn and study and grow or spend time with me. I want you to connect with me. One thing I ask you to do that doesn't violate me. And then I, I don't want you to ever have to work. I want you to have everything and just be able to be free to enjoy time with me. That's all I want you to do is invest in a relationship with me, time with me, moments with me, memories with me. There's just one thing don't do. And then the kid goes and does that one thing. So the parent says, guess what then? You're off the payroll. You're on your own. Now you've got to go in your own living because I wanted you to just spend time with me. One thing I asked you to do, you had the whole world at your, at your fingertips. One thing I asked you to do. So that was a Kosh Baruch with Adam Arishon. That was a Kosh Baruch with us. And what happens? We won't say who we blame. Women. <laughs> but it all went... All right, the snake. Yeah, but we're going to bring So it all, it all went wrong. And what was the conclusion? She got hers. And the snake got his. And we got ours. We collectively got ours, which is B'zeas at Pecha Tochah now it takes work, the sweat of your brow. Kadosh doesn't bring a curse. Kadosh doesn't institute a punishment that is not somehow rehabilitative. The purpose of the punishment, unlike us, where sometimes our punishments are random, they're punitive. If you throw someone in jail, it doesn't necessarily make them better. If you take away your children's devices or ground them or give them time out, it doesn't necessarily address Mida, can I get Mida, what they did wrong. It's not a learning or teaching moment. But Kosh whenever he addresses us, he does so in a way that gives us a glimpse or a window, if we're self-reflective, into what we did wrong and how we can learn from it, how we can improve and grow as a result of it. So there's no Klala She'im Batikun. The Klala, the curse or the punishment, has within it the means to do the repair, to grow, to learn from it. After the terrible mistake of, uh, of the Etzadas, good and evil were intertwined, were mixed together in the world. Our mission is to live life and to do borer, to separate the good from the bad, to winnow and to sift. I want to grow wheat from the ground. But you know what grows with the wheat? Thorns and thistles, and there are um, bugs, and there are E. coli on my lettuce. And, and so what's my mission? Until then, I didn't have to pay attention to separate anything. I had an all-you-can-eat shmorg, and there was a mashkiach who oversaw the kashras, and a health department who oversaw the health, and I had one job, to fill my plate and shovel it in my mouth. And that was my one job. But after the chayt, Kosh Baruch Hu says, you know what your curse is? 
Now you're going to have to be more mindful. Now you're going to have to be more discerning. Now you're going to have to sift through and separate out good from bad, right from wrong, healthy from unhealthy, positive from negative. So you're going to try to grow this thing from the ground, but you're going to have to separate it out. You're going to have to pluck the edible from the inedible. You're going to have to peel the shell from the fruit that's contained therein. You're going to have to separate the chaff from the kernel. You're going to have to avoid the thorn and the thistle. Instead of it being fully prepared, as of when bread grew from the ground, now you've got to plow and plant and harvest and thresh and winnow and sift and grind and, and knead and bake. I think we covered the whole process. Avodas ha'ad me'azi lavar satom yara who wrote legalot fu aviachem tuva matzmicha dama gam kotsu dadar zabirur shaltov meharabet fuah. So the the consequence that we suffered includes symbolically what we needed to learn, right? The consequence that was put on us, namely that we have to now do work. Well, the work includes decision making. So before we suffered this consequence. We went through life carefree. We walked through life, just living life. You don't have to decide. You don't have to be mindful. You just do. The one thing you have to avoid is the Eitzadas. But if you've avoided the one Eitzadas, the rest of the garden is all yours. Don't worry about health. Don't worry about kashras. Don't worry about thorns and thistles. It's all yours. And it's ready-made. It's fully prepared. What happened? The consequence we suffered was now you have to live a mindful life where you're constantly recalibrating, constantly deciding, constantly interpreting, constantly filtering, and constantly evaluating good from bad, right from wrong, healthy from unhealthy. <coughs> Even when you want to purify gold, purify silver, when you want to purify a metal, you are removing from the metal. What are you removing? The imperfections, uh, I forgot the technical word, but you're removing the impurities, you're removing the stuff that needs to be removed. When you eat, your very body is doing that. What does your body do when you eat? It removes the nutrients and the nourishment and it leaves over that which you don't need in order for you to eliminate. Our body is a factory to separate out good from bad. The very goof, the very human body is a factory. It's a brilliant factory. It's absolutely incredible, the design of the factory. It's a brilliant factory, which when the factory goes wrong, we appreciate what it means for the factory to operate on all cylinders. If you're of Ashkenazi descent, you're pretty much guaranteed your factory is going to go wrong at some point. So... I could say that. So, so the factory, the human body is designed to separate out. And why is it separating out the good? To energize us and to nourish us, to have the health, to be able to do Torah and mitzvahs and good things. So basically, it's such a brilliant insight of Revolba. In the world before the Chet Adamari shown in the world, before the mistake in the garden... We didn't have to be mindful. We didn't have to think. We didn't have to separate. We just lived. We just did. We just enjoyed. Kosh Baruch Hu said, you know what happened when I let you live this carefree, enjoying, trust fund life? It, it, it blew up in my face. It messed up. Instead of you're spending more time with me, instead of you're growing yourself, improving yourself, instead of focusing on what matters, the one thing, the one lousy thing that you were supposed to avoid, you couldn't. So you know what? Kosh Baruch Hu says, take two. Version 2.0 of Adam Arishon, Adam Arishon 2.0, download the upgrade, is 
Adam Arishan 2.0 is now you have to live a life of mindfulness, of consciousness, of conscientiousness, of discernment. Now you have to live life looking and filtering and deciding and separating. Just like the body is the factory to decide, you. What can I eat? What's kosher? What's not kosher? Should I say this? Not say this? Can I look at this? Should I not look at this? Can I listen to this? Can I allow this? Should I go here? Should I not go here? What do I do now? Where do I go? Everything is a decision. Allah Adam Atma. So what's in, now what does that take? The decision-making process takes effort. Hishtablis. Initiative. I have to be living life with effort and initiative to be able to make choices. To determine my life, my future, my decisions, my day, my lifestyle. Before and there was no hishtablis necessary. When you have a trust fund and an unlimited all-you-can-eat buffet, and there is no bad, and there, everything is healthy by definition, everything's kosher by definition, everything's good for you by definition, so you don't have to make any effort. You just live life, you just enjoy. But the moment that now there is good and bad, healthy and unhealthy, positive and negative, now when you have to live life and make choices, what does it take? What it demands, what it requires is effort. So man was ordained... Man, generic man, humanity, to have to work for our income. So Kesh Baruch with that placed us and put us inside a difficult test. On the one hand, there are few things as gratifying as and fulfilling as being independent, as, as taking home the, the bacon. I just saw there was an effort, a movement by vegans to change that phrase. It's insensitive, taking home the bacon. I don't know. If we Jews could live with the phrase taking home the bacon, the vegans could live with it too. So, so, uh, Pita is the one who's doing it? Okay, whatever. So, so taking home the, the, the latkes. Bringing home the latkes. So on the one hand, there are few things as gratifying, satisfying, fulfilling. There are few things that are, are as pleasurable as working hard, accomplishing, and enjoying the, the fruit of your labor. That's the, literally, that's the expression that we have, the fruit of your labor. You planted, and you nurtured, and you grew, and you plucked, and you harvested, and now you enjoy the fruit of your labor. says, a person would rather have less of what they earned than more that what someone else earned. Meaning, meaning, my if 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 I plant a, a tree in my backyard, and I you know I plant a tomato vine, and I the vine grows and I tie it to a stick and then I, I water it and then make sure it has enough sunlight and I pluck off the thorns and I prevent all the pests and I and in the end the tomato vine it yielded one lousy little tomato. <laughs> But my neighbor's got a, you know, 10 tomato vines and an army of landscapers who care for it. And, uh, and there's 10 beautiful tomatoes. So he tries to knock on my door and drop off 10 beautiful tomatoes. Says, I have uh, harvested my tomatoes. I've got a gazillion tomatoes. Here's 10 beautiful, beautiful, uh, succulent, red, beautiful tomatoes. So what would a person rather? Their one lousy tomato that they grew or the 10 beautiful luscious, plump tomatoes their neighbor grew. So the Gemara Bab Metziah, Chazal, our rabbis have an insight that the human psyche would rather the one little tomato they grew. Mm-hmm. That the experience of, there's a whole separate, Rav Dessler has an interpretation of this and it's called the Kuntras HaChesed, that love is the result of giving, not getting. This is what we're trying to teach our tweens tonight in our tween night of giving. Mm-hmm. That one night of Hanukkah is about giving, not getting, because when you give, you get more than when you get. 
So one night you give away gifts instead of keeping them and you'll find that that's the night that you get the most. Because giving is getting. Why is giving getting? Sort of Dessler in his Kuntras HaChesed um, develops the notion, the Jewish definition of Ava, the Jewish definition of love. Is love the result of giving or getting? So he says, let me ask you this, who loves whom more? Do children love parents more? Or do parents love children more? So every child who's not yet a parent says children love parents more. But once you become a parent, you know that parents love children more. And he asks, why is that? If you think about it, it should be the opposite. In the relationship, children do nothing but take, 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 take. And parents do nothing but give, 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 give. Certainly from when they're a baby and you wake up in the middle of the night and you change the diaper and you make the formula and you nurse the baby. But even as they get older, small kids, little problems, big kids, big problems, you find yourself still giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. So here the dynamic in the relationship, the paradigm in the relationship is the parent is giving and giving and giving. And the child is getting and getting and getting. So who should love whom more? The child should love the parent more. All they do is receive and receive and receive. They take and take and take and take. So what do you see from here, says Rav Dessler? You see that love is not, it's counterintuitive. Love is not the result of when you receive. Love is the result of when you give. And that's why parents love children more than children could ever love parents. And why is that? Until sometimes the relationship reverses where the child is giving and giving to the parent who needs their love and support. And the child becomes the caretaker caring for the parent. Then maybe the child can get a taste of loving the parent as much. But why is that? Why is it love is the result of giving, not getting? So Rav Dessler says, you know why? Because when you received, it's just selfish. It's just ego. You just got. But when you give, what you've done is you've taken a piece of yourself and you've invested it in the other. Rav Dessler answers the question. The Torah in Sefer Devarim says that the three people exempt from a war are the newlywed one year after they got married, someone who's planted a vineyard and has not yet harvested it, someone who's built a home and has not yet moved in. Says Rav Dessler, isn't that insulting to a woman? We're likening a woman to a grape or to, or, or to a new house. You married, and you built a house, or you planted a vineyard, you didn't yet get to fully enjoy it, all three of you are exempt from war. That's what we're likening, that's the equation. It's insulting, it's degrading. So there's no death, not at all. Because what the Torah is telling us, what do the three things have in common? We're not equating a marriage, I shouldn't say the woman, it's in both directions, we're not equating a marriage to a grape. What we're saying is, what all three have in common is the notion of investing yourself in something else. You worked, you gave up time, you gave up energy, you gave up resources, you gave up sweat. You gave a piece of yourself to that person or that item or that project. There's a piece of you in it and now you love it. Love is the result of giving. Why? Because when you give, you're giving a piece of yourself. You're investing yourself. You're giving your kishkas in something. You're investing yourself in something. That's why the more that you give or the more that it hurts to be giving, the more you'll love as a result. So when you change a diaper at 3 in the afternoon, it doesn't create as much love as when you change the diaper at 3 in the morning. And when it costs you $10 to make your child happy, it doesn't create as much love as when it costs you 10000 to make them happy. The, the, the measure of the giving is proportional to the measure of the love that it yields. So if Desla there in Kuntras HaChesed says that giving is getting. That when you give... You love is the result of giving, not of not of getting. So why does a person Why do you prefer the little pathetic wrinkled tomato over the ten luscious plump succulent tomato of your neighbor? Because your neighbors they were just given to you. They were free. There was nothing. But that little tomato is not a tomato. You know what the little tomato is? 
It's every Sunday that you tied up the vine and you watered the plant and you nurtured and you cared for it. The tomato is not a tomato. The tomato is a piece of you. And you love that piece of you. So that's why a person feels that way. So what is the result of Hishtadlis? With the effort comes satisfaction. The satisfaction of the work we put in, the fruit of our labor, the effort, and the result. The work, the effort, the initiative sweetens the result. But there's a downside to Hishtadlis. So the upside to Hishtadlis is that there's tremendous satisfaction, fulfillment, joy. There's a big downside. You know what the downside is? You look at the tomato and you say, you know why there's this tomato today? Because I planted a tomato. And I watered the tomato. And I nurtured the vine. And I, I made this tomato. And who do you forget? And who do you forget? Who created the water and who created the sunlight and who created the tomato seed and who created the vine? And who determined that you'd even get that one little pathetic tomato? Kirsh So Hishtadlis gives great satisfaction and sweetness. But the bitterness, the bitter side of Hishtadlis of effort is the risk of the fact that you neglect, you forget the other partner, the senior partner in the deal. You didn't grow a tomato, it was a partnership. And you were the junior partner, the senior partner who created the seed, the vine, the sun, the air, the sun, the, 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 the rain, the water. It was Hashem. Don't knock him out of the equation. So on the one hand, Adam and Gan Eden never tasted the satisfaction of working. He never had that satisfaction of earning, of effort, of initiative, of working. He never had that sweetness of his little tomato that he gave up all those Sundays to grow. But he also never, ever, ever, for one moment, thought that he was the one who made Gan Eden. He knew and lived in every moment with the mindfulness that it's all the graciousness, the generosity of Hashem. After the chait, when Adam fell from that high, it's continuing to require a great avoda. And it's a test that renews itself over and over again to get back to that level. In other words, we thought that the punishment was that now you have to do hishtadlis. The punishment's also that it takes effort not just to earn an income. It takes effort to remember that it's Hashem. In Gan Eden, there was no effort to either earn an income, nor was there an effort to be conscious constantly that there's a Hashem. Now, the, the status of after being expelled from Gan Eden, there's both an effort to earn the income, and there's an effort to remember that the success is from Hashem. So, so we live with these two things coupled together. On the one hand, we live with the need to do the effort. On the other hand, we lead, live with, or parallel with it. It is accompanied by the need to remember that though we are now putting in an effort and heretofore we didn't have to, the result of the effort is not entirely up to us. So this is the notion, the effort of separating the good from the bad. We failed when we were given the gift, the privilege, the luxury of not having to separate the Gan Eden existence, we failed. 
And as a result, the consequence is we now live in a world where we have to separate out, where we have to remain mindful, where we have to be ever aware. But that doesn't mean that we just get to enjoy the satisfaction and the sweetness of the fruit of our labor because that comes with the risk of forgetting Hashem. Now we have to remember Him too. Okay, so I, I want to share a Hanukkah thought. So we'll, we'll pause here until Amir Hashem next time. <clears throat> but Rav Volba is setting up his answer to the question. So his question was, we live with an incredible amount of emunah and bitachon. We are supposed to live with an absolute knowledge, mindfulness, consciousness that Hashem determines everything in our life. If we stubbed our toe below, it was ordained from above. So if that's the case, why are we working? Why are we trying? What are we doing? So he's established that we didn't always have to work. Work was a punishment. But a punishment is always a teachable moment. It's not just a punitive measure for no reason. It, re- it includes within it something that we're supposed to learn. What is it that we learned from the punishment of the effort, the work it took, is that within the effort and the shtadlis, we learned how to remember that there is a Hashem. So you can see already a hint to where he's going to go, which is that it's not a contradiction to have to make an effort and to believe it's from Hashem. Within the effort is the reminder that it's from Hashem. If you're living the effort properly, if you're experiencing the consequence appropriately, then the consequence is an exercise in growing. It's an exercise in Amunah and Bitachon. But more on that, Amir Tashem, when we continue next time. Just a quick Hanukkah thought, since we are in the midst of Hanukkah. This is in the Sefer Be'er HaChaim, or in the Nesivasi of Rav Melech Biederman. Fantastic Sefer. The Ramah Paskins in Shulchan Arach, or Chaim Simon Kufbe Zayin, we say Alanisim on Hanukkah. What happens if you forgot to say Alanisim in Benching, before Vial HaKol? After Nodalacha, before Al HaKol, we say Alanisim in Benching. What if you forgot? What if you forgot? So you don't have to repeat Benching, but you later in the Harachaman section of the Benching, we had a harachaman who yasad lanu nisim kemosha also beyamim mahem. Hashem make a miracle for me like you did in those days. And he asked the question, quotes many of the posts in the Tvu Ashur and the Yeshua Yankiv, and others asked the question, since when are we allowed to pray for a miracle? I thought that we don't pray for miracles. We live in a natural world in a natural order. And we ask Hashem to intervene within nature, but we don't rely on, nor do we pray for miracles. What's an example? The Gemara Baruch Hazdaf Nandalad tells us, after 40 days of pregnancy, you're not allowed to daven for it to be a boy or a girl. Yeah. Why? Because once the gender has been set of the baby, you can't pray for a miracle. There is actually a Yerushalmi who says you can, but that was before sonograms. So long as there's no... no the Yerushalmi says, that's the Bavli that says you can't daven. The Yerushalmi says, as long as the gender is not yet known by you or anyone, it's not a miracle. It's not a miracle. Which could be a machlokis in how you define a miracle. Is a miracle intervening in nature or a miracle is intervening in a way that the human being can know? It could be a tamachlokas in the definition of a miracle. Everybody agrees you don't rely on a miracle, you can't pray for a miracle. The question is, what's a miracle? Trust me, I looked into this sugya very <laughs> carefully for many years. So, so the Gemara Baruch says, why can't you daven after 40 days? Because the gender has been a set. So you're not going to daven for a miracle. So... So since when do we daven for miracles such that all of a sudden on Hanukkah, even we sing, we say the bracha, it's an implicit prayer, make miracles for us, make miracles. I was with somebody recently who's, who's uh, struggling from a very significant serious illness. And I said, this is the season of miracles. He made miracles then, he's going to do it now. But even as I was saying those words, we don't rely on miracles. We pray, we do, we take initiative. Oh, so, but what does it mean to daven for a miracle? We don't rely on miracles. 
nor do we pray for miracles. So, what are we doing here? So the Shari Tshuva, Simon Kofbe Zayin, says the following. He says, on Hanukkah, the Jewish people merited for a miracle, but the miracle didn't appear as a miracle. The miracle seemed to come through the natural order. Which miracle is he talking about? There are two miracles of Hanukkah. There's the miracle of the flask of oil that lasted longer than it was supposed to, and there was the miracle of the military victory. So the, mil- mi- the miracle of the military victory was no less miraculous, but it could be explained naturally. The miracle of the Hashemunayim was no less miraculous than the Six-Day War. It's no less miraculous than the modern state of Israel. So yet, even though there was a great return to faith, a big Baal Tshuva, surge of Bali Tshuva after the Six-Day War, surge of Aliyah, surge, surge of Bali Tshuva, but it's worn out. So why don't we turn to every person who's unaffiliated or atheist, doesn't believe, or off the derech, and say, study the Six-Day War. Study the Six-Day War. You're looking for a miracle. You want to see Hashem's hand? There it is. It's undeniable. And now everyone will return to their faith. Why don't they? Because you could explain it away naturally if you want to. Even though we were equally, you know, Rabban biyad ma'atim, giborim biyad chalashim, the Six-Day War. So if you want to explain it naturally, you still can. There's a miscommunication between the Egyptians and the Jordanians, and that gave us superior error. Uh, you can explain it naturally if you want. So this miracle of the military victory of the Hashmonaim, his language, the Lashon of the Shai Tshuva is, Neis HaMelubash Bederach HaTeva HaOlam. It was a miracle cloaked in the natural ways of the world. So what we're asking for, the kind of miracle that we're asking for, is make a miracle that doesn't even seem miraculous. So you're not allowed to daven for a miracle which is a blatant, exposed miracle, an explicit miracle. But you can daven for a miracle that looks like it's working through the natural order. A miracle through the natural order. So, and there are, there are examples. Somebody's going through an illness and they're trying some new experimental treatment. So on the one hand, scientifically, medically, statistically, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Why should that thing work? But on the other hand, if it worked, could you explain it naturally? Yes. So that kind of miracle you're allowed to daven for. That kind of miracle you're allowed to daven for. So that's the answer of the Shari Tshuva. Very interesting answer. That that kind of miracle you're allowed to daven for. But the Shoal Meshiv, Rav Yosef Shoal Nathanson, has a Sefer Divrei Shoal, and he explains in his Joshua Hanukkah differently. He says, the notion of being allowed to daven for a miracle, you're not allowed to most of the year. 51 weeks a year you can't daven for a miracle. But there are eight days that you can daven for a miracle. And that is the holiday of Hanukkah. Because Hanukkah is, for eight days we live Lamalam and Ateva. For 51 weeks a year, we are defined by nature, by science, by the number seven. But for one week a year, we sing in Ma'oz Tzur, B'nai Vina Yemei Shmona. Now, we don't just say Yemei Shmona because that rhymes. It really should not say Yemei Shmona. Whenever I do this, I ask people, translate Yemei Shmona, they say, eight days. But that's not what Yemei Shmona means. Eight days is Shmona Yamim. What is Yemei Shmona? It means days that are brought to you by the number... Eight, like Sesame Street. Yemei, these are days. Yemei, these are days. Shmona, brought to you by the number eight. What do you mean brought to you by the number eight? So we know seven represents the days of creation, the days of the week. Seven is the scientific natural order, the natural world. Eight is Lamala Minateva. It's one above nature. It's the supernatural world. It's Lamala Minateva. So these are Yemei Shmona. 51 days, 51 weeks a year, we live in the natural order, the natural world. We wait and we rely and we explain things scientifically. But one week a year, we remember that even the natural order is supernatural, that everything is supernatural. 
This can answer the Beis Yosef's question. Beis Yosef's famous question is, why do we light for eight days? The miracle was only seven days. They found enough oil to last one day. It lasted seven more days, so the miracle is seven days, so light for seven days. Why do we keep for eight days? The famous question. So say for Ner Lamea, a hundred answers to the Beis Yosef's question. There were a hundred that was written many years ago. Today it's a thousand answers to the Beis Yosef's question. So one of the answers to the Beis Yosef's question is, true, it wasn't supposed to last eight days, so seven days are a miracle. But you know what? Even the first day when it was supposed to light, that's also a miracle. That who says that when you light oil, it should light? Right. Who says? Who determined? Oh, because that's nature, that's science. Well, who, who's behind nature and science? Who said nature should work? Even that first day is also a miracle. So these Yemei Shemona, these are days that we look around and we see the miracles. We see the supernatural within the natural, the extraordinary within the ordinary. And it renews our faith and we affirm our faith that we believe in miracles. That we believe in miracles. As Shweki sang last night, fantastic yeah. concert. Benisim. I believe in miracles. I think one of the most emotional moments I read, you can watch it still on YouTube, yeah. is on the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War, the 50th anniversary of getting back to Kotel and Harabayat, there was a Shweki concert over the Kotel. Yeah. And there he sang that song, Benisim. I believe in miracles. And all the singing and dancing, you should watch this video, it's absolutely, it's absolutely incredible. So, we believe in miracles. And says the Divrei Yashol, the Shol Meshiv, he says, it's not just that we believe in miracles as long as they don't look like miracles. <laughs> These eight days, you're allowed to daven. 51 weeks a year, you can't daven for miracles. We don't rely on miracles, we don't daven for miracles, we're not about miracles. But these, these eight days are different. These eight days remind us, Ein Mazal Yisrael, we don't live in the natural order. Right. Jewish people are Lamalam and Ateva. The bris is on the eighth day. We believe in the eighth, the number eight. We're brought to you by the number eight. That's our number. We're not, num- we're not bound by the number seven. We're brought to you by the number eight. So this is our week. Don't let it go. Don't let it go. Daven for miracles. There are people who need miracles. They need miracles that are embedded in nature. There are people who need outright miracles that can't ever be explained even in nature. This is our week. Because next week we go back to not being allowed to daven for miracles. Next week we go back to not being allowed to rely on miracles. But for this week, we are allowed to daven for miracles. So identify, look at the people, Klal Yisrael, communities, people, individuals. They need miracles. They need miracles. And we daven that in Mir Tashem, Bayamim Ahim, Ubizman Hazeh, that Hashem will bring those miracles in our time as well. Amen.